0: If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, the 12th chapter. If you don't have a Bible, didn't bring it with you, there should be one in the pew there in front of you. I feel welcome to use that. Once you've found your place in Deuteronomy chapter 12, I'm going to ask you to stand as we here read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning in verse 4, this is the word of the Lord. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord your God, you... And your families shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. You are not to do as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit, since you have not yet reached the resting place in the inheritance, the Lord your God is giving you. But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from your enemies around you, so that you will live in safety. Then... To the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you are to bring everything I command you your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And there rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your sons and daughters, your men servants and maid servants, and the Levites from your own towns, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would once again bless the reading and hearing of your word. That's your promise to us. Lord, that's the power of your word. It brings blessing and change and transformation to our lives when your truth is applied by your spirit. So, Lord, we pray that that would be the reality for us this morning. As your word goes out, as your spirit fills us, we pray that you would bring transformation to our hearts and our lives. Lord, we long to be more and more every day, the people that you call us to be. So we pray that you would accomplish that in us and through us, as we come to your word together. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you. you and be seated. This morning we turn we return once again to Deuteronomy chapter twelve to see what other truths we can find in this passage about worship. As we've seen, worship takes first place. It's the number one command in this law book that we find in Deuteronomy that's comprised of chapters 12 through 26. Because above all and before all, you and I are to be worshipers of God. Above all and before all, that's the call in our lives, to be worshipers. So it's certainly worth our attention for another week and even another week after this one to learn all we can about worship, what it is and how we're to do it. So let's have just a brief recapitulation of some of the things that we've been considering over the course of the last two weeks, some of the truths about worship. First is that worship must be God-centered. I know it seems counterintuitive to say such a thing, that worship must have God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at its center, but as many of us maybe most of us, have experienced in our lives. Whatever God ordains is right and good for us, our enemy opposes. What God ordains, our enemy opposes. And if God ordains that worship is good for us, if worship is right for us, and he certainly ordains that, then Satan will attempt to pervert that act or prevent it altogether. Sometimes we know that happens through a direct attack. There are people in the world, lots of people in the world, who are forbidden by their governments to worship. If they do, it comes at the cost of arrest or even the cost of their lives. But sometimes it's more indirect, more imperceptible, so that it looks like worship, what people are doing, but it isn't. People gather in a place that's built for worship. They wear clothes designed for worship. They say they're worshiping, but not so much. You know, in our Christian education series, Next Door, we're in a series that we're calling Christ and Culture. And we've been looking at the culture out there in the world around us. And we've kind of been evaluating that culture and to see where it's consistent and where it's inconsistent with the truth of God's Word. Well, I'm eager to see what we're going to discover in a few weeks in that class. When we look at the culture out there, particularly things in the culture that aren't consistent with the teaching of God's Word, but to see how those things inconsistent with the Word of God have found a home in the church. They're comfortable here. They find a welcoming seat right on the pew around us. Now, I'm not teaching that class, so I don't know what topics are going to be covered when we go in that direction, but certainly materialism could be one of them. American Christians have a lot of stuff. We do. And yet Jesus says, sell all you have and give to the poor. We could talk about the phenomenal explosion of narcissism in our culture. And we could consider Jesus' words, whoever wants to be my disciple must indulge themselves. Oh, excuse me. I read that wrong. Let let me try that again. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny. Yes, that's the word. Must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus also said, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And yet, in some ways, uh, we're we're more concerned if the sound man shows up on Sunday morning than if the spirit of God does. There are lots of imperceptible ways in our self-centered, consumeristic culture that insinuates itself into our worship service until it brings about a worship coup that's what our enemy seeks, to prevent, to pervert worship. Where self, that's you and me, should be standing before the throne of Christ, the King, ready to serve Him. In actuality, self moves closer and closer and closer to the throne until a coup takes place. And we enthrone ourselves and we expect to be served in worship. Worship becomes eye-centered, what I think, what I feel, what I want. Songs become I-centered, I think, I feel, I want. Instead of being you-centered, Lord, you are, you are, you are. Jesus said to Satan, you must worship the Lord, your God, and serve him only. That was Jesus' response to Satan. When Satan said, you know, worship me, Jesus. Bow before me and all the kingdoms of the world, all that you see, I will give them to you. But Jesus pointed Satan to the truth. I realized when I was thinking about that this week, I've always considered Satan a prop in this particular passage. Like, oh, well, Jesus just used the occasion to teach us, the people who would come after, about worship. But then I realized, no, this is a very real conversation that took place between Jesus and his very real enemy. And Jesus spoke the truth to him, and he commanded Satan, get your life in line with truth. Worship God and serve him only. I wonder... I don't know. I just wonder. Don't freak out. Call me a heretic. But I wonder if Satan could have obeyed in that moment. If God's truth, as it came from the lips of Jesus, could have pierced his rebellious, self-centered, narcissistic, glory-craving heart. And if he could have repented and worshipped God, as he had done in the glory and splendor of heaven, before he tried to usurp that glory for himself. I don't know the answer to that question but I know it's answer for us. We can let God's truth redirect and realign our lives where we may have been me-centered in worship, making it all about us and what we like. We can repent and we can worship God and serve Him only. Worship must be God-centered. And when it is, the second reality or truth that we've seen about worship happens. Worship becomes a joyful response to all that God is. One commentator wrote the picture of worship as feasting and rejoicing is one of the hallmarks of Deuteronomy's depiction of Israel before God. Lord, you are, you are, you are. So I rejoice, I rejoice, I rejoice. That's what this passage is all about. Three times in verses 5, 11, and 21, we read his name, his name, his name, And then we read in verses 7 and 12 and 18, Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. That's what worship is all about. This morning, we see another truth about worship that must direct our lives. Worship must be a community experience. I think I could pay off the remaining balance that we owe on these buildings. If I had a dime for every time someone has told me in my life, Well, man, you know... Me and Jesus, we have our own thing. I don't really need to go to church. Have you ever heard that from anybody in your life? Over and over. Me and Jesus, we have our own thing. Guess what? You do need the church. Because the church is a community, and a community is required to do what God calls it to do, and that is to worship Him. I know that there is a sense in which all of our lives are an act of worship. But here, in this passage... Deuteronomy chapter 12, God is specifically addressing corporate worship. Look in verse 12. At that place God will choose, rejoice before the Lord, your God, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites from your town who have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Look in verse 18. Instead, you are to eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place the Lord your God will choose, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites from your town. See, this incorporates everyone, everyone who was part of Israel. They were all to come together corporately for worship. God designed you and me to need to do our thing with Jesus together with other people. We must worship together as a community. The average price for a Super Bowl ticket, Super Bowl last week, $4,174.50. The highest price was $11,635. The cheapest ticket could be had for $1,873. That, of course, does not reflect the prices of the days just before the game, where the cheapest ticket sold for $8,000, And those near the 50-yard line were $28,888. Wow. Why would people pay such prices? Why not just stay at home and watch the game from your couch or recliner? What's the difference? Well, obviously, people want to be at the game in the moment to experience the event with the more than 70,000 other people who attended, to cheer together, to cry together depending on which team did he make that call you know to have someone to elbow and say hey did you see that did you see that you know what it's like that's a drastically different experience than watching the game from your recliner well most people i know can't afford twenty eight thousand dollars let's be honest Most people I know can't afford the $102, which was the cheapest price for a parking space. So what do we do? We plan Super Bowl parties, right? Because people want to be together in community to experience exciting events. God has wired us to have that need, to need community, to worship together in community. Psalm 68 It's written by King David, and it, it describes a beautiful picture of corporate worship. David writes, Your procession, God, has come into view. The procession of my God and King into the sanctuary. In front are the singers, after them the musicians. With them are the young women playing the timbrels. Praise God in the great congregation. Praise the Lord in the assembly of Israel. How often do you think of worship in this way? How often do you think that this is the way that worship should be? You know, this Psalm describes a scene that's very similar to the weddings you know, that, that take place right here in this sanctuary. The guests arrive, they take their seat, and they wait. The prelude is played, and they wait. And then the ceremony begins, and the procession starts, and here comes the mother, the groom, comes the mother of the bride. And then the bridesmaids start down the aisle. One bridesmaid, two, three, on down to the front. And then those back doors are closed. And the music changes. And when those doors are open again, there stands the bride. And everyone looks. And some people gasp at her beauty. Some people smile. Some people begin to cry at the beauty of the bride and all stand together and all keep their eyes fixed on her as she makes her way down the aisle to the front psalm 68 describes the procession of god in, in a similar way here come the singers they're leading the way here come the musicians they're leading the way they're preparing god's people for the entrance of god i believe that god has has given us a picture in Psalm 68, of what our worship is to be like. You know, King David never physically saw God enter the sanctuary. He never did. Because God at that time was the unseen God, but the Spirit of God inspired David with this picture of what worship should be like. Waiting to see God. Looking for His procession to enter the sanctuary. This is also part of Psalm 68. The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary, and when you ascended on high, you led captives in your procession. You received gifts from men. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior. This is the exact passage that's ascribed to Jesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. When he ascended on high, he, Christ, led captives in his procession, and he gave gifts to men. Worship is about the procession of Christ our King. And so when we come to worship, we should come with this sense of of eager expectancy. Something will happen when we, God's people, are together in worship that will not happen anywhere else. Together. We are eager and we're expectant because we know that... We will see together a person of great beauty when the worship begins, when the doors are open, when the eyes of our hearts are open to see the person of Christ. When our eyes are truly fixed on Him, we may gasp in wonder and amazement. Maybe we'll smile at all the praise and and the glory that's being given to Jesus, our friend that He so rightly deserves. Maybe we'll cry. Overcome by the reality of who He is and what He has done for us. We may want to elbow the person beside us. Say, look at Him. Look at Him. Isn't He amazing? C.S. Lewis wrote in an essay, When I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought that I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology. And I wouldn't go to the churches and the gospel halls. I disliked very much their hymns. I considered them to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually, my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth-rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. See, Lewis was keener than many people, knowing when the devil was trying to use things in his life, his own personal preference, what he liked, what he didn't like. And Satan's trying to use his pride to keep him away from God's people and community of worship. We need to experience the beauty of Christ together. So once again, it's not about what we think, what we like, what we want. You may think worship isn't important, really, but you're wrong. You may think you and Jesus have your own thing going on that you don't need the church, but you're wrong. It's all about what God wants for us. And God wants his people to worship together. Worship must be done in community. Secondly, when we think about worshiping together in community, God describes that community for us here in this passage and what it ought to look like. When we look again in verses 12 and 18, we see that God calls all all people together, landowners and servants, sons, daughters, men, women, Levites, all are to worship together. This is God's way of saying that everybody, everybody in Israel is included together in worship. No one... Is excluded. Even those servants in your midst, servants that may be in your household who are from another nation around us, even they are to participate in the worship of the one and only true and living God. In this picture of community worship that God puts before us, He recognizes no hierarchy and no division. And so at least for this one chapter in Deuteronomy, as worship leads the head of the list of what God's people are called to do, role is not the focus. There's no mention of a priest, no mention of a king. Even a prophet like Moses can't find a position here. The passage requires sacrifice, but those doing the sacrifice are unidentified people. We know that those sacrifices will be done by the priests. That's what God has ordained. Prophets will speak God's truth to God's people. That's what God has ordained. A king will rule over God's people. That's what God has ordained. A temple will be built in Jerusalem and sacrifices will be made there. That's what God has ordained. But God has also ordained this moment on the plains of Moab that we read about in Deuteronomy 12. And in this moment, as Moses stands before the people, Instructing them about worship, those people, those roles, that place, they're left unidentified or unmentioned altogether. So what does God mean to communicate here in Deuteronomy 12 about worship? By who He doesn't mention, by who He doesn't identify. The simplicity of of worship, maybe? That worship at its core is about God's people, all of them joining together to worship their God, that no one is to be excluded. J.G. McConville writes in his commentary, those who in terms of their social stru- the social structure of Israel have no power, and particularly no land of their own, they are even so fully part of the holy people of God. When Israel is truly itself in worship, It can brook no division or self-interest within it. No division, no self-interest within it. Our confession tells us that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And in this, God is unchangeable. No division, no self-interest should exist among his people. And so because God is unchangeable, we can move from the plains of Moab, Moab, and we can go forward in time 1,200, maybe 1,400 years, and we can arrive at the church in Galatia, and we can listen in to the letter that's being read to that church. Galatians 3.26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. No division, no self-interest, just God's people worshiping him together. Then we can pack up and move. We can peek in on the church at Ephesus and listen to the letter that's being read to them, Ephesians 2:14. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, everyone, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. No more division, no more dividing wall, no more barriers, no self-interest, just reconciliation, just one body. Just all having access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. All fellow citizens, all members of God's household, all God's people worshiping him together. We can pack up and travel to Philippi. We can peek in at the church there. It meets at Lydia's house. And when we look, we'll see Lydia there. She's a wealthy, prosperous businesswoman. And there she worships along with her family. There we can also see the Philippian jailer, just a low-level government worker. And there he is with his family. And look... Is that that slave girl? Is that the slave girl from whom Paul cast out that evil spirit? And here they are, rich, slave, in between, worshiping together. Why is this so important? Why is it so important that there be no division among us, no self-interest? Why is this a non-negotiable with God? It's because when God's people worship this way, it's a picture it's more than a picture it's a proclamation of the gospel because we are proclaiming that all people landover landover slaves men women prophets priests kings it doesn't matter all stand in equal need of the saving grace of god all stand in equal need of the saving grace of god the ground is level at the foot of the cross and all people are to be invited and all people are equally received when they turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ. When we worship in this way with no division, then we proclaim hope. Everyone, even those without hope who may be peeking in from the outside, maybe those people can spot themselves here in the pew beside us and they can have hope to know that the gospel is powerful, powerful enough to break down every barrier between us. God's power is not limited to reach, and God's heart is not limited to love all kinds of people. Do you believe that? That's what this kind of worship proclaims. It proclaims the power of the gospel. 1 Timothy 2, 1. First of all then, I entreat, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. All kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Paul goes on to write, This is good and acceptable in the sight of, our God, of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. See, this is God's heart. All kinds of prayers offered for all kinds of people. And this is the heart that God once reflected when His all kinds of people come together to worship Him. So what message do we send to the world when we're not obedient to God in this matter? When our community doesn't look like the one described here? Do we communicate that God is a respecter of persons like some, not others? Do we communicate that the ground is not level at the foot of the cross? I will confess to you, I have tremendous guilt whenever I think about passages like this, whenever I think about this topic, because I see God's heart, it's reflected in His truth, and then I see the reality that greets my eyes. We don't have much heterogeneity in this room, you know, we don't. Not in race. Not in social or educational background, not really in age. The older ones of us are kind of out of the loop. (laughs) We truly are birds of a feather, and we have flocked together. But the goal of looking at God's design for worship isn't to inspire guilt within us. The Lord is in the business of removing guilt. The goal here is to inspire hope within us. The goal here is to inspire passion within us. The gospel is powerful. The gospel is not limited. It isn't. isn't. isn't like you are looking down at the speedometer of your 1953 Volkswagen Beetle and seeing that it only registers 80 miles per hour and getting up in despair and saying, this is the best I can ever do. It's more like you're looking down at the speedometer of your 2014 Bugatti Veyron and seeing 260 miles per hour and knowing that that's more than you will ever be able to use or should be able to use in your life. So we're inspired with hope and passion because we know that the gospel can accomplish more than we can handle. We know that the gospel can accomplish more than we can even imagine. Dividing walls, they can come down barriers. They can come down. The gospel transcends them all. All kinds of people from all kinds of places can come to faith in Christ. That's the hope of the gospel. And so our focus this morning isn't on who we don't have among us right now. The focus is on who we are willing to have. More than that, who we are longing to have. And more than that, who we can have. All kinds of people. From all kinds of places and races and all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds. The goal is about not letting this thought and not letting this hope end right here at the close of the sermon. After the song is sung, we go out and we don't think about it ever again. No, it's about continuing to pray together as a church family. That this would be a reality for us. It's about planning strategically from this sanctuary that is right smack dab in the middle of the historic district of a city for almost the entirety of its existence has been racially segregated? That's the reality. What do we do to break down the walls and the barriers to make our worship more colorful? What can we do to make it a reality that we are worshiping here on Sunday mornings beside someone from the east side and someone from high Battery? Because all people stand in equal need of the gospel. And the good news is that God can give help and heal and give hope to all of them. No one's too high, no one's too low, no one's too rich, no one is too poor. And that's why this all-inclusive worship is so important. Because it's a picture of the gospel. Please let me say this is not something that we can force. Please don't go out and drag someone kicking and screaming to to worship. Hey, you, you're homeless. Come, you're going with me. What? Is that a Bulgarian accent that, that that I detect and throw a hood over their head and drag them here? That's not the point. It isn't about quota, X number of any race or economic background. That's not the point. It's about our hearts. Who do we see God to be And who do we see ourselves to be? Because if we see who God is and who we are before him, we won't see any boundaries at all. No division. All in equal need. And so we've got to make sure that our heart is right in this. That we want what God wants. And then we ask God for what we want. Lord, make our worship multicolored, multi-everything you make that happen that is the request the desire of our hearts but we will leave the answer to that prayer in your hands lord you bring who you will bring you save who you will say but by our living example by our living example here on sunday mornings we want to proclaim the truth of the gospel we want to proclaim the truth that all can come and all can worship through faith in jesus christ with one heart and one spirit and one voice. We, as one body, give praise to the Lord. And together we have this one goal, to see Christ exalted until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters fill the seas. Let's pray together. Fathers, always we just ask once again that through your spirit that indwells your people, that you would open our eyes to see and our hearts to understand the truth about who you are, that you would reveal your heart more and more to us. Lord, as you've done in this passage this morning, from the very beginning, from the time that you first established Israel to be your people, your chosen people, this has been your plan for worship. People worshiping together, people rejoicing together in your presence. The richest landowner, the poorest servant, all together before you worshiping and celebrating who you are. Father, I pray that that would be a reality here among us. Lord, it's certainly different. We know it's so difficult to break down barriers in our culture. Some of those aren't intentional, Lord. It's just the way things are culturally because people's preferences do so often rule in worship. And so we let our preferences as to music and preaching style and uh, building uh, separate us from people. Lord, I pray that you would be making us uh, more and, and more eager uh, to make worship about you and what you want us to do and what you want from us. Lord, we know the gospel is powerful. It sees no color lines or, or culture lines or socio-economic lines. It just doesn't. Lord, they're all superficial. The greatest need, the very base of everything, is the same for every human being that is alive now or whoever will live. The only hope that we have is in the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would help us to proclaim the gospel to all kinds of people, that you would inspire us to pray for all kinds of people. And Lord, if it's your will for us, we pray that you would bring all kinds of people to us. Lord, I pray that this thought won't end here in this moment, that you would convict hearts this morning to believe that this is the way it should be. And that those in whose heart you are moving would pray toward this end, repeatedly, without giving up. Lord, make it so. Pray, Lord, that those in whose heart your spirit is speaking this morning would help us together, as leaders in the church together, to plan strategically, Lord, how we might break down walls and barriers that separate us so that it may be true that with one voice and one heart and one spirit, we all, all kinds of people from all different places worship you together. For We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.